Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Welcome, everybody, to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith. Allow me to introduce my co-host, the Mount Desert to my Peaks Island, Curtis Wister. How are you doing today, Curtis? I'm doing well, Ben. Doing well. I like the island theme today. It's, you know, the sun's out. It's getting a little warmer. We may not be at the end of winter, but I think we're getting there. So We're closer to spring. You got to yeah. think warm thoughts and exactly. things. And- and um, I know, I know. Obviously, we've covered a lot of topics lately on our show, and and one that you know, I think you and I have have seen a little bit more from our population that we service as financial advisors is anxiety. Yeah, and people getting a little bit more wrapped up around or worried about things or nervous about things, and it's something that I, again we've seen and it's found more often than depression and cognitive disorders sometimes in older yeah. adults. Yeah. And I'm going to quote a WebMD article. I know, I know. <laughs> but, you know, what the resources we found that 10 to 20% of older adults suffer from anxiety. Yeah. And we we all have family members and friends and relatives that we just know anxiety is uh, is something that, you know, that that constant state of worry is is something that's that that's kind of present in our lives. Absolutely. So, again, in our practice, of course, we see these signs and we see untreated anxiety start to shrink our clients' worlds, right? And that's right. and I, I think what we want to do in our show and in a lot of our practices, well, we have money, we now are retired, what what are we trying to do with this money and how do we expand our worlds? How do we experience more of life? Mm-hmm. And when we start getting more anxious about, say, traveling to other parts of the world or social situations or being judged. So all of those pressures happen. Then I start, I don't go to social situations as much. Right. I maybe, maybe I don't go to the doctor, right? I don't get checkups because I'm anxious or worried about hearing possible bad news. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be this way, does it? So there are there are things that we can all do to address our anxiety and help us manage our fears, whether they're logical or illogical. So that that's what really what we want to talk about today and have a discussion about ma- managing anxiety as we age. Absolutely, Ben. And you know, as we like to do on our show, we, we like to bring in experts. Uh, you and I are nowhere near experts in this topic. Nope. <laughs> um, so our guest joining us today uh, attended Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, uh, where he earned a bachelor's with a double major in psychology and music. Nice after, combo. Yeah, exactly. So after an unsettled year of uh, living for brief periods on Martha's Vineyard in Bristol, England, and Raymond, Maine, which I think is just a fascinating uh, trio of places, which we might need to explore, uh, he spent the next decade uh, in the great Midwest uh, c- completing a uh, master's and PhD in psychology at the University of Nebraska and a clinical psychology pre-doctoral internship at Indiana University Medical School. So for more than uh, the past 17 years, he's worked at Northern Light Acadia Hospital as a psychologist, program director, and quality improvement director. 
Uh, he has always found teaching to also be among his greatest interests and passions. Uh, his areas of professional work have included improving the integration of primary care and mental health, uh, improving healthcare quality and organizational performance in the use of measurement and applied research in healthcare settings. Uh, his clinical interests include bariatric surgery, group psychotherapy, and treatment of schizophrenia. So Hassan University's health administration and public health major allows him to pull together these many areas of interest to prepare the next generation of healthcare workforce in an industry that provides endless academic and practical challenges. So currently living in Hamden, Maine with his wife, Diana, also a psychologist, and uh, their three daughters, he spends a lot of his time working for Hamden Psychological Consultation. Uh, he's an avid runner and a not-quite-so-avid hiker. Uh, he spends what free time is left, which, based off that bio, I don't think is much, enjoying the many benefits of living in Maine. So with that, uh, please join me in welcoming David Prescott to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. David, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Thanks, Curtis. I appreciate that. It al- it almost sounds like you're describing somebody else. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of years there you covered. Thank you. So, David, uh, obviously, we we read the bio, and we we're now acquainted with with some of your through thread. We always just like to get to know you a little bit and kind of what makes you tick. Uh, love to hear a little bit about kind of maybe the soft part of the, your background and what drew you to a career in psychology. Yeah, you know, I probably started at the point like a lot of folks who end up in psychology. You enjoy helping people. Um, I've and I enjoy listening to people. So I think that's a big thing that you 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 know like to listen. Uh and you you find the question of what makes people do what they do fascinating and that still still does it. Um I had the really good fortune. I grew up in uh Lebanon, New Hampshire, which is right next to Dartmouth College and Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. Uh, and I had the good fortune to work, uh, summers when I was in college as a psychiatric technician on their mental health unit up there. Uh, and I just, I got hooked. I loved the work. Um, I loved helping people. Um, and, but I'm still just curious, right? I just, I, I, I never get tired of trying to understand what people are thinking, what makes them tick, uh, how they're put together and how they handle problems. And, uh, so, you know, that is, that is probably, probably the biggest thing. I, you know, the biggest life or biggest lesson for me as a psychologist is to shut my mouth and listen, because usually most people, if you can guide them, will come to a solution for their problems by themselves. What you tell them, you know, 90% of it, they hear it at the moment, but it's gone mm-hmm. when they walk out the door. Hmm. As I read off there a couple minutes ago, you have experienced many other parts of this country and the world yeah. throughout your life. Why have you chosen Maine? Like, why, why, what made Maine the place to be? <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think about that year from Martha's Vineyard to England to back yeah. to Raymond. Um, it, it was a little random. You know, like a lot of people, we, even though New Hampshire is a beautiful state, where our family used to come here to vacation over in Western Maine, actually, over in the, the lakes around Bridgeton and, and Freiburg and that. And then I had the good chance to go to school here. I was really lucky to get a lot of help in both finding Bowdoin College and then uh, being able to, frankly, to afford it, which was mm-hmm. beyond my family's reach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they helped out a lot. And there's something, you know, I often tell people that there's there was a similarity between Maine and Nebraska. The pragmatism of the people, the rural nature of the states, 
and the and I think the fact that the people at the at the end of the day value helping each other and what's going to work rather than any type of ideology ideology or difference you know based on anything else just permeates Maine I think and certainly did with Nebraska so I when we get a chance to come back to Maine they were building Acadia Hospital we didn't know it Diana and I were living in Indiana and they were recruiting like mad so we we thought we'd try it for a year or two and that was in 1994 um <laughs> and here <yeah>. you are <laughs> stuck okay yeah i love the people here i really do yeah it, and, and david i know that there'll be something we'll talk a little bit more about here over time of obviously the people here and that and kind of what makes us tick as a group right and kind of yeah. some of the things that we find but let's go back to northern light health acadia hospital here a little bit so <laughs> talk about obviously i know you've had several hats over the years with mm-hmm. with uh acadia Tell us about your role currently and what impacts you've seen at, at Northern Light over your career there. What, what have you kind of seen happen since, again, as you're saying, from since inception, almost 94 yeah. through now, you know, what, what have you kind of seen the difference being made uh, with that, with that uh, organization? Yeah. I had the good fortune when I came up, the, the folks that developed and built Acadia Hospital who were concerned members of our community to talk about their own personal experience, either themselves or a close family member of when somebody needed really top notch psychiatric and mental health care, having to go to Boston if they needed to go in the hospital for treatment and how disruptive that felt. And just, you know, like any of us that have had to travel for a medical, you know, condition, you, it just wears you out. Mm. And they, they really took the idea. Why can't we build a first rate, you know, world class psychiatric hospital here in Bangor. And they just, they knew how to make it happen. So, and I continue through as I've been at the hospital through, you know, watching the mental health evolve and in the whole, the, the opiate epidemic, which has had a huge impact on mental health services. And some of the things we now recognize in kids like autism spectrum disorder, which was yeah. rare, partly because we missed it, partly because we think it's going up. It's, it's just been a, a pleasure to, you know, be able to tell somebody, like if you see me in the emergency room, you see them in therapy, something other than, Hey, look, we're going to have to send you down to Boston. We're going to have to send you to New York, you know, or even just down to Portland. That never, that always feels good, right? That never gets old. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's great. And, I know the the topic we want to really dive into today, right? Talking about managing anxiety as we age. So as we kind of transition into the, the beef of the conversation, we think it's best to always just start with some foundational knowledge, right? So for our, our listeners, can you just kind of give us a definition of an anxiety disorder, right? So what are some of the yeah. most common anxiety disorders? What are the symptoms? Um, and kind of tell us how maybe we could talk about anxiety related issues with a doctor. Yeah. And that's really important. And we may, we may return to this, but having anxiety in and of itself is not bad, wrong, or abnormal. Mm. We all do. It serves a purpose, but the things we look for in mental health are um panic disorder, which is repeated panic attacks. Mm. So, and having, having a panic attack in and of itself is not terribly uncommon, but having repeated ones. So we have that. We have something called generalized anxiety disorder, where anxiety, instead of focused on one thing, has spread to like everything in your life. So, yeah. so everything makes you anxious. Right? So panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. 
There's debate in the field about obsessive compulsive disorder, whether or not to count it as an anxiety disorder. Okay. So we, we have that. The other thing we see a lot are, are people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, have been through some horrible thing, often things that are hard to listen to, abuse, neglect, some, you know, very difficult trauma, but they get a lot of uh, anxiety associated with that. So kind of those generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and maybe for some obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm, I like that. So David, uh, and you mentioned panic disorder. Let's just kind of dig into that. Yeah. That one specifically is as a common type of anxiety disorders and just seeing um, like my grandparents as they age and you could see yeah. that there's things that kind of created this kind of panic attack. So again, I, I know I have several people I obviously know that have had anxiety issues, but so why do panic attacks occur? And then what are some triggers of those attacks, right? So how how, the, how do we kind of like, let's kind of get to the kind of core root of mm-hmm. like, why do, why are they happening to us? And then what are some triggers that you kind of see over time that you, you kind of feel like they're, they're kind of more common to be associated with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Interestingly, a lot of people, the first time they have a, a panic attack, um, show up at the hospital thinking they're having a heart attack. Mm. So they, they, it, in it, so it feels, a lot the same from what, uh, you know, what we listen to people. So you, the physical symptoms, you get all of a sudden, like your heart is beating really, really fast. You can't catch your breath. You, your kind of scope of vision narrows, right? You're just, all you can think about is the anxiety. Often they're shaking. People are sweaty. Uh, they feel like they're going to die. They, they do yeah. that. And it yeah. is intense. Right. One of the things we find for people is that once you've had one, you will go a long way to avoid having another and to kind of turning your life in a pretzel, just, you know, upside down. In and mm. out. So people get that kind of thing. The onset is usually pretty. It's, it's a, it's a rapid ascent, right? It's, it's like uh, climbing up, you know, one side of a roller coaster really, really fast. Um, and they get there and they feel like. They can't get out of it. They feel like they can't breathe, like they can't slow themselves down. Um, it's incredibly subjectively unpleasant. So now what we think, um, I, I often tell people um, to think of what happened to your body when uh, you like almost got in a car accident or almost fell off of, you know, very high place or something where you you had one of those <gasps> kind of experiences. Yeah. Right. And I guess I would ask you guys, do you remember what happened? Like maybe if you've ever. uh almost been in a car accident, what the experience was and what your, what happened. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right? absolutely. Yeah. So what was it? Uh, I'll put you guys on the spot a little here. Like what? Uh... Yeah. So I would just say like, um, you know, so here, of course, lose control of the car. Right. And, and so for me, I, I, I was in high school, like driving home hits, hit black ice, lose control. I'm in the moment and it's like nothing I can do in the moment to kind of control it. And the car is just going where it wants to go. I hit a guardrail. Right. And in that moment, it just all of a sudden I'm just seized right up, hit the brakes as, as much as I can. And I just, I don't even comprehend like what's, what just happened to yeah. me. Yeah. It took me a second of like, well, I'm in high school. What do I tell my parents? Do uh-huh. I, right. And I'm just, all of a sudden I get very frightened. I get very, I just am in survival mode all of a sudden and I'm just, I I just start like then driving back uh, away. And I'm like, 
wait, should I even be doing that right now? It's just, <laughs> I, I just lost complete control over what I should be doing, what's rational, logical, all that. So that was my experience. Yeah, I think I'll kind of just, so I, I guess, thankfully, mine isn't, I think, as in-depth as that one. Uh, so what I'm thinking of, honestly, it happened probably six months ago, just driving down Stillwater Avenue here in Bangor. And thankfully, the technology and vehicles now, I think the car stopped before I could have registered and stopped it myself. But someone just uh, pulled out in front of me, I think, coming out of like Hannaford area uh, grocery store. And it was one of those that just, I guess, the the post it happening feeling, I think, is where you're going. And like, yes. I'm sitting in my car, like, trying to Ben's point, trying to process what just happened, right? I'm kind of taking inventory. I'm like, did I hit some what happened here? And everything was fine. But my heart's going like crazy. And I'm just I had to I think I ended up pulling into like I was headed to Best Buy or something. And I go and I just kind of sat there for a minute like, hold on, relax. You know, my Apple watch is pinging at me. It's like your heart rate's going through the roof. Like, What's going on here? But I think where you're trying to go, it just all of a sudden in my defense point, it, my body just locked up and I was like, what happened? What I miss? Like, where am I? That kind of feeling. And it's just, yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy, I guess, is the only way I can interpret kind of what I was feeling. Yeah, exactly. And you do feel crazy. So yeah, those are, those are both great examples. So if what happens in those things, you notice one of the things that happens is there's a little bit of a delay between like when you see the other car or you realize you're skidding and when your heart starts going and you're, you're, you're breathing and you're, you know, you're sweating and you're breathing really fast. So that's your, as, as most of us know, that's your fight or flight system getting switched on. It takes a few seconds for it to fully mobilize. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what's happening. And all, once that flips on, all those physiological responses are just going to run its course. You, you can s- slow it down, you know, lessen its impact, but it's going to go, right? You can't mm. stop that kind of feeling. All right. That's what happens. So in a panic attack, what we think happens is that that gets flicked on. That's that system that's hardwired into you, but it's not for a physical danger kind of thing. Right. In your yeah. situations, there was a danger, you know, it, it, near hand for you were going to get, you know, crunched. Yeah, uh, and with right. the, the guardrail, right, you're doing that. <laughs> but we find for people with panic attack, it's something else. It's a psychological thing that turns that system on and, and kind of reinforces it. Right. It's, it's mm. the danger, perceived danger keeps going and going. And it's really hard to think, Ben, what you were saying, you know, exactly like you start, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? You're, your ability to sort of organize and figure out rationally what to do next is just kind of shot all to pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that's the experience. So, David, you you made a you made a point about this mental pretzel that people get in, right? Is like, hey, I just had I went through this fight or flight moment. Yeah, I elevated myself into this unsettling physical state. Mm-hmm. And so let's use kind of maybe my my example of I'm I'm in my car and I lost control. Mm-hmm. So are you saying essentially like because like maybe that's the thing that led to a panic attack for me so yeah. that I would then have anxiety or I would try to avoid maybe yes. getting back in that car because I'm yeah. so worried about a repeat event mm-hmm. and leading up to a panic attack that I just avoid that uh, that activity altogether. Yes, exactly. That's what happens. And the other thing you see sometimes is that people have trouble identifying what it was that triggered the panic attack. Our minds are, are, are processing a lot of information. Um, so there will be, you will start to have one. And, and I've worked with people. They cannot at first figure out why. 
Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's really obvious. But this is, you know, this not only with, and we're talking a little bit about, you know, people as you age and anxiety and stuff like that, but there can be things around your house. It can be like sorting through the mail and you see like a bill or something that you don't want to think about and you put it aside, but your mind kind of grabs onto it. And then a, a little while later, all of a sudden you're, you're having a panic attack and you say, I can't figure out where this came from. Usually you, you can back up and find where the trigger is. Sometimes they're very obvious. You I'm know, sure. you get into something like that. But the, for some people, the, the, the cues, what sets it off is often pretty subtle and you have to kind of get into what their, you know, subconscious or, you know, barely conscious mind is processing, uh, and back it up to that will cause it. In, in those cases, people are often turning their lives upside down. They don't know what caused it. And so they just kind of freeze for a while because yeah. they just don't want to have another one. Mm, that's interesting. Um, so I want to keep going here uh, and talk specifically about uh, older adults. Um, so as Ben mentioned, I think in the intro, so as our role as financial planners, um, yeah. we see financial insecurity kind of being an anxiety trigger uh, often for that population that we work with, um, you know, especially in, you know, looking back at the year of 2022 when they may see losses in their portfolio and it just starts to become feeling overwhelming for them. I just want to ask, so what are some other topics that you see as common anxiety triggers in this group of people? Um, and then I'll, I'll have a couple follow-ups after that, but I'll, I'll pause Okay. There. Yeah. And the financial insecurity is certainly one. Yeah. Um, for some people, I see kind of the, the question of what the heck am I supposed to do now with my life can cause a lot of anxiety. Yeah. We spend a lot of time for many people who have, you know, families and careers and such that are meaningful. You're just kind of driving through that from your thirties, forties, fifties, sixties. And, and you just, it really is a shift in kind of, okay, what's my purpose? What am I all about? Kind of we call existential anxiety. But I think we're really patient with young people to go through that. You know, there's a whole lot of things about, okay, what are you going to do? Try this. It's okay that you haven't figured it out and all those kind of things. We don't seem to have that same thing built into our society with older people. You know, we're like, what do you mean? You've been alive for, you know, 65 years. Why can't you figure out what you're supposed to be doing here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a common trigger. The other thing, loss of like mental, mild loss of mental functioning or physical functioning is often really anxiety producing for people. So it's, it's normal to have a little bit of, uh, cognitive, we've studied this quite a bit, cognitive slowing. Like for example, for, for older people, it's, it's normal to take longer to solve a problem or read something or process something. You're just as good as you always were, but you start to think, uh, oh man, I'm losing my edge. I'm losing that. And people's anxiety about losing their memory can really go right, you know, take them right up the ramp in a big hurry. So loss of mental functioning, loss of physical functioning, and kind of that general transition about, so what am I supposed to do now? Yeah, no, those are all really great points you brought up. And and as you were explaining the uh, the cognitive slowing, I mean, I, I can only imagine what that, I mean, I'm sure you would just spiral into, is this like, am I losing my mind? Do I have dementia? Mm-hmm. Do I, you know, and so I can right. just only imagine that. Um, I want to ask, yeah. so if, if I'm an older adult, what are some ways that you think I can manage that anxiety better as I age, uh, specifically in this question, say, without medication? Yeah, yeah. And in 
while psychology, we're not experts in medication. It can be every physician I've ever talked to says it's usually more tricky in in the elder the older you get because mm. you process them slower and different. So the the thing to avoid, I think, for a lot of people when they're kind of going up an anxiety peak, it's like they get almost to the top of the mountain and then they stop and run away. Right? Mm. And and what you start to learn, this is what we do when clinic when we treat clinical anxiety is that a lot of people have learned that escape and avoidance, either getting out of the situation or just not thinking about it, is how I'm going to manage my anxiety. So we're like, it, I mean, it's literally like when we were kids, you used to like put your hands on your ears and go, la, 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 sure, la, la, sure. you know, yeah. that kind of thing. But a lot of people, they deal with their anxiety by avoidance. And, and then, and then it just keeps coming back over and over again, right? It comes and they, they have to work harder to shut it off. So the first thing I say to people is I walk them through that whole anxiety scenario. Okay. So tell me what, you know, what happens if your memory isn't really as good? What does that mean? What does that mean? What is that? We just, and you find a couple of things happen. One is it's rarely as scary as you make it out to be. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is you start to figure out what to do about the situation that's causing you anxiety. So you push a little bit through. Um, some people are really good at it naturally. Mm. You push a little bit through trying not to, f- trying to fight that tendency to just not think about it. Mm. Yep. And, and David, I'll, I'll kind of echo that because I know just as we're talking to the population that we support, right, is, you know, right now we're meeting with people and it's like we're reviewing results that are really probably not not something that they really want to talk about or see, mm-hmm. or they know they have losses, but I, I think they're they're scared that well, we're going to come to them and say, hey, that lifestyle that you've been living, you know, what that means is that you're not going to be able to enjoy your lifestyle anymore. Or so they have this mm-hmm. avoidance of, I don't want to have this conversation because if you tell me that I'm not able to live the life that I'm living now, um, and if I just avoid it, then maybe the results turn around tomorrow and everything's all solved for itself. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're we're trying to do this of let's just talk about where we are. Mm-hmm. Let's have a productive conversation about, hey, what can we do? What behaviors can we adjust to get ourselves back on track to maybe enjoy the lifestyle that you're looking to have long term? And, and let's versus let's ignore and then hopefully it goes away and then maybe it doesn't. Right. So, (laughs) so I think that we, we kind of have that a lot with, with that kind of group that we work with. And it's, I think on us of they're paying us to kind of think about their best selves long term. And I think that's, that's where we're trying to kind of help them. But I want to ask a kind of another question here. And uh, you gave me a quote. Is it, is it Hans Selye? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Okay, Hans Selye, a pioneer in stress research, research. He says the absence of stress is death. Uh-huh. So you were you were saying earlier, right? A little bit of anxiety is actually a good thing, right? Is that hey, getting a little bit of anxiety means we care and it can enhance performance and keep us focused. If we didn't have any anxiety at all, we might be a little bit, um, you know, more laissez-faire and just kind of be bopping through life that way. So my question to you, David, is. So help us distinguish what is helpful anxiety and what is unhelpful anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you I forgot I gave, gave you that quote. That's I love that one. <laughs> he was an interesting guy on Cellier. He did his original stress research. He was a little bit mean, really. He <laughs> he would toss a, a rat or a mouse in a, a vat of water that had like straight steel sides so it couldn't climb out. 
and and watch it stress itself out. I don't think he killed them, but he would let it get really, really stressed until it was about to drown and then measure like its adrenaline levels and stuff like okay. that. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I know. You so you just wonder. <laughs> okay. at, at any rate. But still he had some good quotes, right? <laughs> yeah, I think in in most of us realize this intuitively if we think back to it, but a little bit of anxiety makes you a little better at what you're doing at the moment. So, you know, think of you in school or something like that, right? If you were taking a test um, or for if you were a team sports participant, right? You could, you know, you wanted to be a little bit on edge when you went into a situation. And that 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 helps us in many situations. Performers talk about this, but just every day. So that's not necessarily bad. And the fact that you're a little bit anxious about something can be if you can get get your mind to think this is telling me something that I need to pay attention to rather than I need to stop now because I don't want to worry about this right but use it as a signal right this is telling me something I need to pay attention to I wonder what it is let's let's talk about it think about it so and and a little bit of anxiety gets us through it helps us get through all the, the things we have to do in our day or if you're worried about a deadline you're going to get that form or that paper in or make that phone call or something like that. So it's, it's quite helpful. You know, people who don't, you know, take an extreme people who don't care and have no anxiety or apprehension about anything, just don't pay it any attention. So, you know, part of it is just trying to harness and mobilize your own anxiety. It's a little bit energy. Now we've seen for everybody when it gets too much, right? If you've ever gone over the thing. And again, I use performance or athletics a lot. If you're too keyed up when you go up to bat or swing a golf club or try to, you know, recite the poem when you were a kid in front of your class and something Mm -hmm, like that, then you screw up, right? You just get disorganized. So yeah, keep a a lot of it is keeping it in that sweet spot. Hmm. So I want to rotate to the, uh, the idea of caretakers, right? So let's say, I'll use myself as an example. Say I'm taking care of my dad or my mom, a family member, neighbor, mm-hmm. whoever it may be. What tips or advice would you give to caretakers, right, to help them approach the subject of anxiety and how to best help that person they're caring for? Yep. And this is really hard. Caretaking is is just it's it's going to happen more and more, but it's it's it it is a real shift in most people's lives. You're just getting a whole nother channel in there. Mm. So for a lot of, one of the things that you have to overcome, as, as others have talked about, oftentimes your roles are shifting, right? So you, you're like, okay, you know, how do I give my, my loved one, often my mom or my dad or my aunt or my uncle or older brother or sisters, how do I give them advice? Cause it always went the other way. Sure. Um, it, it, I mean, this sounds a little lame, but mostly I tell people, yes, it just feels weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that, um, being direct, getting it out in the open is a big thing. Hmm. Um, rarely have I any time ever talked to somebody who's anxious or wound up that they haven't thought about it or haven't yeah. noticed, right? You're not telling them something they don't know, right? So I, I get it out there. And then, you know, I was saying very early on, if I've, if I've learned anything or, or trying to learn, it's to, to listen more than I talk. Yeah. And, and, and when you're going to bring it up, probably the best thing you can say after you bring it up is nothing. Uh, I had a friend who said, bite your lower lip, mm-hmm. you know, just, just ask them what, you know, is that true? Tell me a little more about it, you know, and then, then I usually ask them solutions, right? What do you, 
what it, and I, I don't say what do you think we should do about it. I say what have you thought about doing about it? Yeah, because mm-hmm. people have some ideas, right? Because if you say what do you think I'll do about it, usually they say I don't know. Right. But if you say what have you thought about doing about it? So be direct. Listen more than you talk, right? And ask what they've thought about doing about it. Usually, people feel better that it's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, David, I want to I want to ask. Um, we try to obviously in this podcast, we're trying to give give things of advice of things yep. that people should know about and help them, right? So, it's, it's one thing to say what here's some things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another kind of way to look at this is what are things that we shouldn't be doing, right? What are <laughs> what are some mistakes that we all make? Mm-hmm. We probably know are wrong, or probably not the way to address things, or maybe the most productive ways to attack things. But I could see where, you know, hey, I have anxiety and, you know, um, I'm retired and, you know, I could just, as you said, just suppress it, right? It's like, hey, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm having uh, panic attacks. And if I go near a car, I have a panic attack. So I just don't go near cars anymore. That, that's as simple as that, right? It's, if I yeah. suppress it. Or, you know, um, you know, when I, when I have maybe a few beers, right? Maybe, maybe that helps me. I, get, I have a few mm-hmm. beers and I get in that car and I don't have a panic attack. So if I just continually have a few beers in me all the time, then that's okay, right? Yeah. Or whatever, have recreational <laughs> drugs or, you know, I could, I, you know, you see my point about there's poor oh, yeah. outlets maybe for anxiety of if I just maybe self medicate, if I kind of self diagnose, and as you said, I think we all can work ourselves into the mental pretzel at times. Mm-hmm. There's other ramifications of those things which could lead to mistreatment of loved ones, right? Is all of a sudden someone starts uh, yapping at me that I'm drinking too much or, right? There, there's all this, I have other behavioral issues that come out of this kind of core issue. So mm-hmm. my question is, what do you see as common mistakes that, you know, us as we age that we're making as we try to self-diagnose and self-medicate our issues? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And some of them are are not unique to aging, although the impact on our sure. body, to, or our bodies can't take as much. So you mentioned, you know, have a few beers or something. Alcohol is one. And that is, it's it's ingrained in our culture, I think, right? We say to somebody, oh, you know, you seem wound up. You need to go have a good stiff yeah. drink. Yeah. Right? It's, mm, yeah. It's, it's just in there. Um, I think it's important to remember with, with medicine or alcohol or anything, as you age, your body's ability to process that quickly is not as good as it once was. Mm. So the, the same amount will, it'll take you longer to process it. You can get, you know, the, an effect that it's more than you think it is. So that's, you know, that's a good one. Some people, you know, they, they've struggled either previously in their life or, or the, you know, it kind of comes back. You thought you had it licked, but now it's kind of come back. There are other things we do, you know, people talk about stress eating, right? Yeah. So sure. Sometimes we do, but you know, in, in any age, a, a whole bunch of weight gain or not eating real good foods. I mean, it's kind of, it's basic. It's like the advice your mom gave you when you were four, but, but it really does often not help you. Uh, people who are cigarette smokers, oftentimes you see that they will increase that and those just tend to, to compound the problem. So you want to watch that. The, the other thing, Ben, you, I think you mentioned, but you kind of to make the point explicit. A lot of times I see people in counseling settings who, We'll talk, they get referred for anger. Usually somebody else says that you're snappy, you're irritable, you're yelling at me. I find that anxiety is underneath that. 
Interesting. And so, inter- and we've all done it, right? When you're stressed sure. out and yeah. somebody does something that you consider stupid, words come out your mouth or things that you do that you're thinking, oh, <laughs> but, uh, but some people aren't really aware of it, that what's really driving their, their irritability or their anger is anxiety. And if you can get underneath of that, it's a lot more. We respond a lot better to somebody saying, Hey, what's worrying you these days? Then quit being such a jerk. Right. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I want to talk about uh, medication here. And I know that's yeah. kind of a continuation there. Um, maybe not self medicating anymore, but actual um, doctor medicating. Uh, so yeah. when does a doctor or patient know uh, kind of when it's time to go on medication to exist, mm-hmm. uh, to assist with uh, managing anxiety? Uh, and I'll, I'll pause there. And I have a couple follow-ups. Yeah, no, that's really, really good. In in the mental health profession, it's a little less clear for guidelines. Like for depression, we usually say if you're depressed for two straight weeks, mm-hmm. you should probably go get treated or, or consider medication. It's not a bad guideline if you've been struggling with anxiety or having repeated panic attacks, panic attacks for a couple straight weeks. I think it's a good idea to go talk to somebody. I really I. I think having an honest conversation about your preferences with your doctor, your psychologist, your anybody is really good. People are all over the map with their own self-acceptance of anxiety anxiety medication. Mm-hmm. Some people really like that idea. Some people don't. If you look at the research over time, mostly what happens if you compare medication to counseling, say, medication gives you a little bit benefit first. But then after a while, counseling catches up and they stay pretty even over time. There's a little bit of evidence that in the long term, psychotherapy or counseling um, will hold its progress longer. Mm. People tend to, yeah. So I would guess say to, to your question, part of it without being, you know, flip about it is when you think you want to do something. Yeah. Two straight weeks is not a bad idea. And then there's different ways that, that people who prescribe medication go at anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a different types of medication that will do different things for you. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a good conversation to have. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'm just going to keep going on the medication yeah, yeah. question. So, so in this scenario, say now I'm on medication for my anxiety. Yeah. How do we know when it's time? And we maybe, how do you all know yeah. um, when it's time to up uh, or maintain or lower a dosage for that maintenance of my yeah. anxiety? Yep. When I talk to my psychiatrist and primary care friends, we say a couple of things. A lot of the medication they're using these days for anxiety were actually originally marketed as antidepressants. Mm. So Prozac, Paxil, Effexor, Avinlafaxine, Zoloft. And those seem to have the first effect they have is it helps your mood a little bit and then later they help anxiety those don't work it's not it's not like taking a a, a relaxed pill right you don't feel it for quite a while so hmm. the the question of that when do you know when to up it first the first thing is often you've got to give it a couple weeks gotcha. before you get that anxiety effect some of the anxiety meds we don't use them as much anymore the the old ones we had like when when I was growing up my my grandma took them it was like Valium and mm. stuff. Those you want to be really careful about upping the dose because they're a little bit addictive. Sure. Um, and and what you're doing is you're developing tolerance to them. Yeah. Um, and, and people get, um, this is not the most clinical term, they get sloppy. You know, their behavior kind of, mm. speech is a little bit slurred and that. So those you probably don't want to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that, make, that makes sense. Uh, so 
And then just kind of a from you, where you're sitting now and, and mm-hmm. kind of looking backwards over your career, like I know you just mentioned uh-huh. Valium and no longer, yeah. you know, certainly used a lot. What advancements are happening or have happened and are happening right now kind of in the treatment of anxiety? Yeah, it's good. Uh, physicians are getting really good. They're sometimes they're using what you see them do, it's, uh, medications that just Target anxiety in certain things. They use things like a medication called propanolol and, and that, but it just takes away the physical reaction of anxiety. And often that can break the cycle. Remember, we said that fight or flight cycle. Sure. So really all they're doing, I'm going to oversimplify it, but they're just kind of lowering your blood pressure and your breathing rate and everything physiologically. That'll often help. So we're, we're getting better at that. Actually, the use of those antidepressants for anxiety has been a big shift in the last 10 or 15 years. Hmm. I would say the other thing I see a a lot is the incorporation of of non-medical and non-psychological techniques. People are really getting into, and it's good for, for anxiety, yoga, mindfulness, meditation, that kind of stuff. And it's awesome to me to see these be so available now. I think the pandemic helped us with that one because mm-hmm. uh, you can get these really top-notch kind of classes on Zoom and you don't have to go to a studio, which is great, but, you know, our lives are busy. So I'm pleased to see all those kinds of thoughts. It's good stuff. So, David, I want to ask another question here. And yeah. um, some of it is, so here I am, right? And I'm, you know, I, I, I kind of... I feel like anxiety is just kind of becoming more of a prevalent issue in my life, right? Is, and I'm, I'm aging and I'm just sensing, uh, it's just something where it's just taking a hold of different parts or I'm, I'm avoiding things or I'm doing more of other things. I guess my, my question is if I want to do something about that, first steps would be go to my primary care physician and have that conversation with it. It's kind of like, I, I just, if I'm going to look for help, I guess my question is mm-hmm. where's the best in first place to go. I think that I think you nailed it. And as much as I would like somebody to call up a psychologist or a, a, a licensed therapist in my profession, you, unless you know somebody personally, you know, you, you, if you use the internet, you, you know, do a Google search on, you know, psychologists around Bangor or something. And, and all you get are these faces and names and you just don't know anything about it. Yeah. So I, I love going to primary care. You can rule out sometimes you will find health shifts in your physical health that are, are causing anxiety or, or, you know, for depression, mood disturbance or stuff like mm-hmm. that. So they can rule that out pretty quickly or ch- or at least start to investigate it. But, but yeah, I would go to my primary care and just, they know people, they know who's reliable. They, you know, and they can probably tell you somebody that is maybe not that reliable, but I would just, they're going to be your fastest way to get in. We're so stacked up in wait lists in, um, and I know primary care is too, but in, in psychology and, and psychotherapy, we're, you know, a lot of people I've talked to have called around and they're like five months, seven months. That's too long to wait. Yeah. And especially as you're saying from a, Hey, I've been dealing with something for two weeks. Right. And, yeah. and this is something where I, I, I feel like it's getting worse and worse and worse and I need help mm-hmm. is to be able to, and is, I think, 
the great thing about your profession, David, which is similar to us, it's a relationship business, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. hey, I want to sit down with somebody that I feel can listen to me, understand what's happening, help me progress and advance through it. So Mm -hmm. it's such a, it's such a big deal. And uh, so I guess that's, that's where I wanted to go is that Mm -hmm. um, versus, as you said, like, hey, I'm, I am struggling with this issue going, I know we don't use the yellow pages anymore, but Google or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. I was about to say that. Like, we don't use the no, yellow I'll pages. Yeah. So just to kind of scroll through the Rolodex and say, let's just start calling everybody and kind of see who can get in, right? Is Because I think from the PCP side is like, well, hey, at least maybe they already have that relationship and then they know what's happening with me and they can kind of go with, do you think psychotherapy is the best route? And, and then get in versus just self-diagnose. I just need counseling and I'm just going to go to that. Right. So it sounds like you're, you're kind of six to one half dozen the other from that side about, Hey, I, I had this two week issue and I might take another month to get to my PCP. And I, maybe I just go and jump to it. I don't have to get a referral as I, I guess what I'm hearing. Uh huh. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and you know, you hit upon it's, it, you've helped me think a lot, Ben, about the similarities in our, businesses that it is mm-hmm. about relationship uh, ultimately and um the other thing i tell people when they try it out and i don't know if y'all do this in your your thing but i think the people that are best at, at our professions they're very genuine they say you know let's let's talk you figure out what i'm all about i'll figure out what you're all about and then for heaven's sake let's say right away if we don't think we click let's just say that yeah yes absolutely because again, I, I think it's a two-way street. We both don't want to be unhappy when we're sitting down together. So I think that's that's a really big deal. So I think that's that's exactly right. And David, I want to ask another question because again, one is to get services, but also from the hey, I'm looking on the web, and I know I made the faux pas right in my intro of looking up WebMD statistics on things. <laughs> but we all kind of look at WebMD like, oh, yeah. I, have, I have these eight symptoms. Let's Google them yeah. all. And that's going to tell me that I'm terminal with two weeks left to live here. <laughs> so, so my question here is, hey, listeners out there, I have some anxiety. I, I, I have, I think, unhelpful anxiety that's happening to me right now. I want to go look at some resources that I think might get me on a path to start. Again, we examine the PCP and direct to kind of psychotherapy counselor side. What resources would you have them check out to educate themselves about the issues we're discussing today? That's a really good question. And I did it yesterday, too. I had a uh, I don't know if you can see my left eye is a little bit red. So the first thing I did was I went to WebMD. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did that. And then I called my doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a really good question. And, and, uh, again, I'm sure in your profession too, you know, a, a Google search will pull up for you. This is a little bit cynical, but whoever has paid Google the most money to rise to the top of the search. Yeah. That's right. Um, so the ones I like to tell people, the American Psychological Association, it's our professional association, they are really careful about this and they have help topics. They really broaden them out so you don't have to just say anxiety. You can do panic. You can do PTSD. You can do all of that. And they're, oh, my word, my profession, I love them to death, but they're meticulous to a fault. So before they get anything up there, they've had a bunch of people who think they're always right go over it with a fine-tooth comb and come to agreement. So American Psychological Association is a really good one. The other one that um, 
I like to go to the National Institute of Health or the National Institute of Mental Health. So these are federally funded research agencies. But where they've shifted their um, their web presence for the general public is on these kind of help topics for that. They realize that people go to that as an authoritative source. Mm-hmm. So they have some really, really nicely worded, clear, uh, you know, user friendly, if you will, kind of things. So, um, you know, I tell people that American Psychological Association uh, or the National Institute of Health, and if you do that, you know, National Institute of Health Anxiety, you'll get a really nice two or three page handout on symptoms, mm-hmm. differential diagnosis, treatment options. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. And we'll make sure to have those uh, resources available in our show notes, yeah. too. So for listeners, don't worry, you don't have to remember that we'll have the links right there for <laughs> everyone. So we have one final question for you, David. Um, <laughs> so obviously, our show is all about retirement success. So mm-hmm. we like to ask all of our guests, how are you going to find your personal retirement success when you get there? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Through a curveball, didn't I? <laughs> toughest question of all. That is, that's a, that's a really, a really good question. If I'm honest, I think a little part of me doesn't ever think I'm going to stop working. And even mm-hmm. as I say those things out loud and I know that it's not logical. Uh, and I had been advised by other people who do what you do that they're kind of in a nice way say, yeah, I hear that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> now let me tell you how it really goes. <laughs> right. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's been helpful for me is, uh, uh even the, even within my profession of psychology is to do some things about trying to get my retirement success has to do with me remembering or reminding myself of what is, there are many things that are important to me, but what things are most important to me. And I, I was, I was doing something recently. It was some, it was like a forced choice kind of thing, but it only gave you a couple seconds. You couldn't stew about it. Mm-hmm. And it said, would you, what's more important? This or this? What would you rather do? This or this? And then it calculates a thing to show you. And it really rang true. So I think my idea for retirement success is to remember. If I can remember and articulate what I really, what my priorities are mm. through the rest of my, my life, then it all kind of falls into place, including the financial thing. Because then my, you were talking about earlier, Ben, my, you know, if, if your portfolio, your investment or your income flow is just going, you know, not the way you had hoped, it's, I'm sure always, you know, it's either going up or down <laughs> things, but, but you start to say, Oh, well, well, it's not that much fun. I know what my priorities are. And when you know that, then the rest is just playing it through. And it feels okay. Where in psychologically and for myself, what doesn't feel okay is when your retirement, however you do to success, doesn't line up with who you truly feel you are. You get that. And when that happens, you're just grumpy. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Yeah. Cause again, doing more of what makes you who you are versus doing things that um, are not who you are, right? Is it kind of this? And and then if your money's not tied to it, which I know Curtis and I talk a lot with our clients and our team here of is all of a sudden it's like, well, Hey, if we're telling people they can't do the thing that gives them the most purpose, which by the way, work is a very valid thing. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's something where, Hey, maybe I'm, to your point about our bodies and our minds kind of having to change as we age, maybe we're not able to do as much, 
but we're able to do different, do it in different ways. Yeah. We're able to do it in different capacities. We're able to do it in different quantities, you know, all those things and adapting as we age to kind of do that. It's just, uh, again, I, I, I know I'm kind of giving your answer back to you here a little bit, but <laughs> it's, uh, it is just, it's something where I think when people discover that they go, Oh, it's just, it's a big exhale because resources that are aligning to that. And that's like, I get it. I understand. And I am not changing a binge of, of vocation for a binge mm-hmm. of vacation. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of this, this purpose thing. So I, I think that was a really awesome yeah. answer in terms of kind of Absolutely. where, where we try to help our clients as well. So David, thank you so much for coming on our show today, sharing, oh, wow. sharing with us uh, a lot of your knowledge and expertise. Uh, I know it was um, it's just, I think, helpful personally, but I know our clients, too, and, and the, our listeners out there that we we can go back to this library and ha- it's a really great starting place. So thank you so much for coming on. You're absolutely welcome. I, I have no idea how much time we spent. I will say it went very fast. Um, yes, yeah, that was that's <laughs> exactly. great for you guys. All right, David, you be well. Take care. OK, use YouTube. So episode 80. Managing anxiety as we age, right? We got to eighty, 80. so we're we've made another it. another decade there. here, <laughs> right? We're getting we're getting older too. Yeah, right? we're, we're experiencing aging exactly. So yeah, really good to have uh, David Prescott on. Obviously, I think as you heard, just has a wealth of information yeah. around absolutely again, uh, psychology and especially anxiety. So this is just something that I know, Curtis, you and I and our team we've talked about a lot. Is mm-hmm. you could just see anxiety and anxiousness around things. Yeah. So we always like to kind of kind of highlight things that we took away from today's meeting. Curtis, what was uh, what was the takeaway that you had about yeah. our conversation with David? Yeah. You know, one one piece that really stuck out to me, Ben, and it's something I hadn't really thought about with anxiety. You know, you mentioned both of us are, are both aware and, and we see anxiety a lot. The point David was making about healthy versus unhealthy anxiety or helpful versus not helpful anxiety, I think mm-hmm. was what he said. It was just really interesting to me because, you know, the point was being, you know, it's normal and it's okay to have a little anxiety about these, you know, these achievements or goals or whatever it is you're trying to achieve in your day-to-day life. And, you know, he didn't explicitly say this, but the feeling I got was like, you know, if you're worried a little bit about how you'll do or how you'll perform or whatever, you know, it shows you care, right? If there's that little bit of anxious, it keeps you on edge. It keeps you focused. And, you know, and then obviously he talked about it building to being not helpful anxiety and unrealistic expectations or wherever you want to go with that, that then becomes the, the, the spider web of, of anxiety disorders that we talked about. But for me, just to hear him talking about the, the helpful anxiety piece, it was, it was something that I think as soon as he said it, it made sense to me, but I just hadn't heard it kind of expressed and, and presented that way. So I thought that was really helpful to hear. Yeah. Again, from a kind of the, I know the conversation we had with Cliff Singer, right? Is this whole, what is, what is normal aging and cognitive exactly. uh, health yeah. and memory versus what's, what's kind of non-normal cognitive in memory aging yeah. there. So exactly. I, think, I think those are the, those are good, good, good lines to maybe not, they're not like stark lines, but maybe they're gray there. Well, here's, here's kind of where we're blending from my daily life and using using kind of normal uh, or kind of quote unquote, just regular helpful anxiety versus non-helpful. So Absolutely. I think that was a, as a key point I, I want to add uh, too is again, we, we've had enough kind of client conversations over the years and talking to people is 
But anxiety triggers was something I, I really thought uh, was was interesting. We wanted to ask about, and we talked about financial insecurity and something that we're seeing a lot is, you know, we, you know, Maine's a rural state. You know, there's there's a lot of first generational wealth that's being experienced right now. Where yep. you know, I've never had this much money in my life, and nobody in my family's ever kind of saved this level of wealth. That's right. So I have this thought about anytime I start seeing my account balance drop, anytime I I start spending from this balance, it's a trigger to me of going back to kind of where maybe I have a memory of, hey, you know, we couldn't make that car payment and we got our car repossessed. Right. Or geez, we, we were on food stamps, right? We were on snap and we were, we were, you know, getting food banks and we were needing to rely on that. I don't want to go back to that place. Right. I, I worked my whole life to get out of that. I don't want to go back. Mm -hmm. So these triggers are, you know, the insecurity triggers are really also anxiety triggers here. Right. And we start to talk about avoiding that of like, I don't want to see my account balance drop. So I'm not going to spend anything from it. I'm just going to live on nothing until I see that come back and I avoid that. So I think those are things in our profession as we're trying to help, um, you know, our clients is, is something to kind of keep in mind. And I think that was a really helpful kind of way to explore that. So again, uh, those were really our highlights of the day. You know, it, it, obviously we want to, we'll give you some research, uh, research and links here from, as uh, David said about the American Psychological Association, the National Institute of Mental Health. We'll have links there. In addition, we'll put some Northern Light Health Acadia Hospital yeah. links yeah. as well. So Absolutely. go to our show notes. Um, it's blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash eight zero for 80, Show 80. For episode episode 80 so you can go check that out there just a reminder my name is ben his I'm- name is curtis <laughs> exactly we are the retirement success in maine podcast thank you so much for listening we really appreciate you tuning in and being on this journey with us um and we'll catch you next time <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisors' mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.